Part Six of the Story of Mary MacLean. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Story of Mary MacLean by Mary MacLean, Part Six. January thirty-first. Today. As I walked out, I was impressed deeply with the wonderful beautifulness of nature, even in her barrenness. The far distant mountains had that high, pure, transparent look, and the nearer ones were transformed completely with a wistful, beseeching attitude that reminded me of my life. It was late in the afternoon, as the sun lowered, the pure lavender of the faraway hills was tinted with faint rose and the grey of the nearer ones with sun-colour. And the sand, my sand and barrenness, almost flushed consciously in its wide, mysterious magnitude. In the sky there was a white cloud. The sky was blue, blue almost as when I was a child. The air was very gentle. The earth seemed softened. There was an indefinite, caressing something all over, that went into my soul and stirred it, and hurt it. There was that in the air which is there when something is going to happen. Only nothing ever happens. It is rare, I thought, that my sand and barrenness looks like this. I crouched on the ground, and the wondrous calm and beauty of the natural things awed and moved me with strange still emotions. I felt and gazed about me, and felt again, and everything was very still. Presently my eyes filled quietly with tears. I bent my head onto the breast of a great grey rock. Oh, my soul, my soul, I said over and over, not with passion. It is so divine, the earth is so beautiful, so untainted, and I, what am I? It was so beautiful that now, as I write, and it comes over me again, I cannot restrain the tears. Tears are not common. I felt my wooden heart, my soul, quivering and sobbing with their unknown wanting. This is my soul's awakening. Ah, the pain of my soul's awakening! Is there nothing, nothing to help this pain? I am so lonely. So lonely. Fanny Corbin, my one friend, my dearly loved anemone lady, I want you so much. Why aren't you here? I want to feel your hand with mine, as I felt it sometimes before you went away. You are the only one among a world full of people to care a little, and I love you with all the strength and worship I can give to the things that are beautiful and true. You are the only one, the only one, and my soul is full of pain, and I am sitting alone on the ground, and my head lies on a rock's breast. Strange, sweet passions stirred and waked somewhere deep within me as I sat shivering on the ground, and I felt them singing far away, as if their faint voices came out of that limitless deep, deep blue above me and it was like a choir of spirit voices, and they sang of love and of light 
and of dear tender dreams, and of my soul's awakening. Why is this, and what is it that is hurting so? Is it because I am young, or is it because I am alone, or because I am a woman? Oh, it is a hard and bitter thing to be a woman. And why, why, is woman so foul a creature that she must needs be purged by this infinite pain? The choir of faint, sweet voices comes to me incessantly out of the blue. My wooden heart and my soul are listening to them intently. The voices are trying hard to tell me, to help me, but I cannot understand. I know only that it is about pure, exalted things, and about the all-abiding love that is somewhere, and it is about the earth-love and about truth. But I cannot understand, and the voices sing of me the child, a song of the unloved, starved little being, and a song of the unloved, half-grown creature, and a song of me, a woman, and all alone awaiting the devil's coming. Oh, my soul, my soul! A female snake is born out of its mother's white egg, and lives a while in content among weeds and grass, and dies. A female dog lives some years, and has bones thrown at her, and sometimes she receives a kick or a blow, and a doghouse to sleep in, and dies. A female bird has a nest and worms to eat, and goes south in the winter, and presently she dies. A female toad has a swamp or a garden, some bugs and flies, contentment, and then she dies. And each of these has a male thing with her for a time, and soon there are little snakes or little dogs for her to love as much as it is given her to love. She can do no more and they are fortunate with their little snakes and little dogs. A female human being is born out of her mother's fair body, branded with a strange, plague-tainted name, and let go, and lives a while, and dies. But before she dies she wakes. There is a pain that goes with it, and the male thing that is with her for a time is unlike a snake or a dog. It is more like a man, and there is another pain for this. And when a little human being comes with a soul of its own, there must be another awakening, for she has then reached the best and highest state that any human being can reach, though she is a female human being, and plague-tainted. And here also there is heavy soul pain. The name the plague-tainted name branded upon her, means woman. I lifted my head from the breast of the grey rock. The tears had been falling, falling. Tears are so strange. Tears from the dried-up fountain of nineteen years are like drops of water wrung out of stone. Suddenly I got up from the ground and ran quickly over the sand for several minutes. I did not dare look again at the hilltops and the deep blue, nor listen again to the voices. Oh, with it all, I am a coward. I shrink and cringe before the pain of the dazzling lights. Yet I am waiting, 
longing for the most dazzling light of all, the coming of the devil. February 1st Oh, the wretched, bitter loneliness of me! In all the deep darkness and the silence there is never a faint human light, never a voice. How can I bear it? How can I bear it? February 2nd I have been looking over the confessions of the Baskritsev. They are indeed rather like my portrayal, but they are not so interesting, nor so intense. I have a stronger individuality than Marie Bashkirtseff, though her mind was probably in a higher state of development than mine, even when she was younger than I. Most of her emotions are vacillating and inconsistent. She worships a god one day and blasphemes him the next. She never loves her god. And why, then, does she have a god? Why does she not abandon him altogether? He seems to be of no use to her, except as a convenient thing on which to fasten the blame for her misfortunes. And, after all, that is something very useful indeed. And she loves the people about her one day, and the next day she hates them. But in her great passion, her ambition, Marie Bashkirtseff was beautifully consistent, and what terrific storms of woe and despair must have enveloped her when she knew that within a certain period she would be dead, removed from the world, and her work left undone. The time kept creeping nearer. She must have tasted the bitterness of death indeed. She was sure of success, sure that her high-strained ambition would be gratified to its last vestige, and then to die. It was certainly hard lines for little Bashkirtseff. My own despair is of an opposite nature. There is one thing in the world that is more bitter than death, and that is life. Suppose that I learned I was to die on the 27th of June, 1903, for instance. It would give me a soft, warm wave of pleasure, I think. I might be in the depths of woe at the time. My despair might be the despair of despair. My misery utterly unceasing. And I could say, never mind, on the 27th of June, 1903, all will be over. Dull misery, rage, nothingness, obscurity, the unknown longing, every desire of my soul, all the pain, ended inevitably, completely, on the 27th of June, 1903. I might come upon a new pain, but this, my long old torture, would cease. You may say that I might end my life on that day, that I might do so now. I certainly shall if the pain becomes greater than I can bear, for what else is there to do? But I shall be far from satisfied in doing so. What if I were to end everything now, when perhaps the devil may be coming to me in two years' time with happiness? Upon dying it might be that I should go to some wondrous fair country where there would be trees and running water and a resting place. Well, oh well, but I want the earthly happiness. I am not high-minded and spiritual. I am earthly, human, sensitive, sensuous, sensual, and, ah, dear, my soul wants its earthly happiness. I cannot bring myself to the point of suicide while there is a possibility of happiness remaining. 
but if I knew that irrevocable, inevitable death awaited me on June 27, 1903, I should be satisfied. My happiness might come before that time, or it might not. I should be satisfied. I should know that my life was out of my hands. I should know, above all, that my long, long, old pain of loneliness would stop June 27, 1903. I shall die naturally some day, probably after I have grown old and sour. If I have had my happiness for a year or a day, well and good. I shall be content to grow as old and as sour as the devil wills. But having had no happiness, if I find myself growing old and still no happiness, oh, then I vow I will not live another hour, even if dying were rushing headlong into damnation. I am, do you see, a philosopher and a coward, with the philosophy of cowardice. I squeeze juice also from this fact sometimes, but the juice is not sweet juice. The devil, the fascinating man, devil, it may be, is coming, 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 and meanwhile I go on and on in the midst of sand and barrenness. February 3rd The town of Butte presents a wonderful field to a student of humanity and human nature. There are not a great many people, seventy thousand perhaps, but those seventy thousand are in their way unparalleled. For mixture, for miscellany, variedness, bohemianism, where is Butte's rival? The population is not only of all nationalities and stations, but the nationalities and stations mix and mingle promiscuously with each other, and are partly concealed and partly revealed in the mazes of a veneer that belongs neither to nation nor to station, but to Butte. The nationalities are many, it is true, but Irish and Cornish predominate. My acquaintance extends widely among the inhabitants of Butte. Sometimes, when I feel in the mood for it, I spend an afternoon in visiting about among diverse curious people. At some Fourth of July demonstration, or on a miners' union day, the heterogeneous herd turns out, and I turn out with the herd and of it, and meditate and look on. There are Irishmen, Kellys, Caseys, Callahans, staggering under the weight of much whiskey, shouting out their Green Isle maxims. There is the festive Cornishman, ogling and leering, greeting his fellow countrymen with alcoholic hardiness, and gazing after every feminine creature with lustful eyes. There are Irish women swearing genially at each other in shrill pleasantry, and five or six loudly vociferous children for each. There are round-faced Cornish women likewise, each with her train of children. There are suave, sleek, sporting men, just out of the bathtub, insignificant lawyers, dentists, messenger boys, plungers without number, greasy Italians from Meaderville, greasier French people from the Boulevard edition, ancient miners, each of whom was the first to stake a claim in Butte, starved-looking Chinamen here and there, a contingent of Finns and Swedes and Germans, musty, stuffy old Jew pawnbrokers who have crawled out of their holes for a brief recreation dirt-encrusted Indians and squaws in dirty, gay blankets, from their flea-haunted camp below the town, 
box-rustlers, who are as common in Butte as barmaids in Ireland, swell, flashy-looking Africans, respectable women with white aprons tied around their waists and sailor hats on their heads, who have left the children at home and stepped out to see what was going on, innumerable stray youngsters from the dark haunts of Dublin Gulch, heavy restaurant-keepers with toothpicks in their mouths, a vast army of dry-goods clerks, the paper-collared gentry, miners of every description, representatives from Dogtown, Chicken Flats, Busterville, Butcher Town, and seldom seen, suburbs of Butte, pale, thin individuals who sing and dance in beer halls, smart society people in high traps and tally-hoes, impossible women, so-called, though in Butte no one is more possible, in vast hats and extremely plaid stockings, persons who take things seriously and play the races for a living, beer-jerkers, biscuit-shooters, soft-voiced Mexicans and Arabians, the dregs, the elite, the humbly respectable, the off-scouring, all thrown together and shaken up and mixed well. One may notice many odd bits of irony as one walks among these streets. One may notice that the Irishmen are singularly carefree and strong and comfortable and so jolly, while the Irish women are frumpish and careworn and born earthward with children. The Cornishman, who has consumed the greatest amount of whiskey, is the most agreeable, and less and less inclined to leer and ogle. The Cornish woman, whose profanity is the shrillest and most genial and voluble, is she whose life seems the most weighted and downtrodden. The young women, whose bodies are encased in the tightest and stiffest corsets, are in the most wildly hilarious spirits of all. The filthy little Irish youngsters from Dublin Gulch are much brighter and more clever in every way than the ordinary American children who are less filthy. A delicate aroma of cocktails and whiskey and soda hangs over even the foreign hands and automobiles of the upper crust. Gamblers, newsboys, and Chinamen are the most chivalrously courteous among them, and the modest-looking plunger, who has drunk the greatest number of highballs, is the most gravely, quietly polite of all. The rolling, rollicking, musical profanity of the Old Sod, Bantry Bay, Donegal, Tyrone, Tipperary, falls much less limpidly from the cigaretted lips of the ten-year-old lad than from those of his mother who taught it to him. One may notice that the husband and wife who smile the sweetest at each other in the sight of the multitudes are they whose countenances bear various scars and scratches commemorating late evening orgies at home, that the peculiar, solid, block-shaped appearance of some of the miners' wives is due quite as much to the quantity of beer they drink as to their annual maternity, that the one grand ruling passion of some men's lives is curiosity, that the entire herd is warped, distorted, barren, having lived its life in smoke-cured Butte. A single street in Butte contains people in nearly every walk of life living side by side resignedly, if not in peace. In a row of five or six houses there will be living miners and their families, the children of which prevent life from stagnating in the street, while their mothers talk to each other, with the inevitable profanity, over the back fences. 
On the corner above there will be a mysterious widow with one child, who has suddenly alighted upon the neighborhood, stealthily in the night, and is to be seen at rare intervals emerging from her door, the target for dozens of pairs of eager eyes and half as many eager tongues. And when the mysterious widow, with her one child, disappears some night as suddenly and as stealthily as she appeared, an outburst of highly colored rumors is tossed with astonishing glibness over the various back fences, all relating to the mysterious widow's shady antecedents and past history, to those of her child, and to the cause of her sudden departure, no two of which rumors agree in any particular. Across on the opposite corner, there will be a company of strange people who also descend suddenly, and upon whom the eyes of the entire block are turned with absorbing interest. They consist of half a dozen men and women, seemingly bound together only by ties of conviviality. The house is kept closely blinded, and quiet all day, only to burst forth in a blaze of revel in the evening, which revel lasts all night. This goes on until some momentous night, at the request of certain proper ones, a police officer glides quietly into the midst of a scene of unusual gaiety, and the festive company melts into oblivion, never to return. They also are then discussed with rapturous relish, and in tones properly lowered over the back fences. Farther down the street there will live an interesting being of feminine persuasion, who has had five divorces and is in course of obtaining another. These divorces— the causes, therefore, the justice thereof, and the future prospects of the multi-grass widow are gone over, in all their bearings, by the indefatigable tongues. Every incident in the history of the street is put through a course of sprouts by these same tireless members. The Jewish family that lives in the poorest house in the neighborhood, and that is said to count its money by the hundred thousands, the aristocratic family with the Irish point curtains in the windows, that lives on the county, the family whose husband and father gains for it a comfortable livelihood, forging checks, the miner's family, whose wife and mother wastes its substance in diamonds and sealskin coats and other riotous living, the family in extremely straitened circumstances, into which new babies arrive in great and distressing numbers, the strange lady with an apoplectic complexion, and a wonderfully foul and violent flow of invective, are all discussed over and over and over again. No one is omitted. And so this is Butte, the promiscuous, the bohemian, and all these are the devil's playthings. They amuse him, doubtless. Butte is a place of sand and barrenness. The souls of these people are dumb. End of Part 6